It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Midweek show, but no midweek games, at least not in the Premier League. But that doesn't mean there wasn't action in England. Tuesday and Wednesday third round replays brought the FA Cup back into our lives with one Premier League title contender bowing out of the competition. Elsewhere, transfer season continues, round 23 is on the weekend horizon, and the American presence in the Premier League. Well, we're going to talk about that one. Welcome everybody to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Before getting to that topic, for which Karthik Krishnayar will be joining me during the second half of the show, I want to welcome in my regular midweek co-host, Nipun Chopra. And Nipun, the big game out of the third round replays took place today at King Power Stadium, where Tottenham eliminated Leicester City with a 2-0 win. Tell me what you thought about their performance. I thought that uh, Spurs was excellent in the first half, Ericsson in particular. Uh, I think the last time I was on with you, Richard, I mentioned the fact that uh, one of the reasons I did not consider Spurs to be a title contender was because they were heavily reliant on Harry Kane and there wasn't enough backup in terms of uh, quality up, up front and in the attacking midfielder role. And Ericsson, since then, in the three games, three or four games, has been uh, terrific in all the competitions. So that's something that Spurs will be, so supporters will be buoyed by. Uh, but the big thing for me, Richard, was watching Leicester City, who I'm sure will be okay with the fact that they went out uh, of the <laughs> Based cup. on their team selection, I would hope exactly. so. Exactly. Uh, I was impressed by their 19-year-old uh, Gray, who was, mm. in my opinion, uh, running riot against a very good Spurs defense that you know we know has done great in the Premier League. So uh, for that reason, I think uh, Ranieri will be thinking to himself, I've got a player that is going to be able to step up uh, now that Mahrez is sort of falling away, a player that has that same attacking intent. Uh, and he really linked up well with uh, um, Danny Simpson as well at fullback. So good signs for Leicester as well. He seems like a more potent option than Nathan Dyer, yeah. who a lot of people wondered why he moved from Swansea to Leicester at the end of the summer window. Well, look at Swansea's roster. You can see why somebody like Nathan Dyer isn't needed. They have Jefferson Montero and Wayne Routledge. Just only so much redundancy you can have with the burning wingers. Uh, but with Gray, like you mentioned, he's young. He just got signed from the second division from Birmingham City, I believe. And I think a lot of us are just learning about him. And he seems like somebody that could potentially combine that ability to go one-on-one, target him against a weak fullback, and really produce some end product, whether that be actually attacking goal or finding the industrious Jamie Vardy or uh, the even more industrious Shinji Okazaki in the box. Uh, For the last 30 minutes of games, he seems like a very scary option. 
agreed. And, and the big thing also for me is the fact that he gives Ranieri something that we have continuously been saying Leicester does not have, which is depth. So I think yeah. that's kind of... Yeah, I think so too. Um, they go three deep with those midfielders, and we saw Inler today, so that provides some cover there. They now have some cover wide. We've talked about the depth that they have up top when they can bring somebody like Leonardo Ulloa off the bench. Um, defense is where I think it gets a little bit sketchy, and maybe we saw a little bit of that today. Uh, they fully rotated their back line, even though Schmeichel was there. Uh, they brought in the, pretty much the same players that they brought in before during cup competitions, and, and now they're out. And I think that's probably part of the reason why you say they're not going to be too sad to bow out of this conversation at this point. At, at the same time, I was still very impressed by Spurs throughout that first half, and particularly the second half. Yeah. They kind of lost their verve going forward, but they shifted into a kind of control where it seemed like at about the 70-minute mark, maybe even sooner, you just watch this game and go, oh, there's no chance Leicester's winning this game. Spurs are just controlling play without without very much contention from Leicester. Yeah, but th- there was also that moment for me at one nothing where I thought um, Leicester had, especially at the start of the second half, yeah. they really came back into the game for me. And when Chadley scored the second, it seemed to me a little bit against That's the run of true. play. But, but you're right. Once that second goal went in, that was, it did not look like Leicester was coming back. So in that sense, uh, you know, it's a, great, it's a great performance from Spurs in a cup competition. They themselves rotated. So those are good signs for Pochettino. So Spurs, we know this isn't the Premier League, but when you look at the Premier League table, yeah. they have the best defense in the league. Mm-hmm. They've actually scored more goals than Arsenal at this point. They have the second best goal difference behind only Manchester City. What are they going to have to do to convince you that they're title contenders? They'll have to show me the kind of play that Ericsson had today. They're going to have to show that he's going to have to show that more often in the Premier League. Because I still think, in spite of uh, the fact that he had he's had a couple of good games, I think he's been inconsistent. Some of that is because of injury. I think he's been he's- their best player this year. But he was injured for what was like yeah, five I mean, weeks or so in the. But my but my point is they've not had enough up front other than Kane and maybe him. Maybe you're right. Maybe Eric's I'm not giving Ericsson the credit he deserves. But I think their strength is still in defense. I think their strength is yeah. still in that triumvirate in midfield. I do not think they have enough uh, attacking quality just yet. Because but do you think Arsenal uh, has enough attacking quality? Yes, but I do. They've scored less goals. Than right, Spurs. but then when you look at that lineup and uh, you realize that they have. Theo Walker, when they have Joel Campbell as their least, uh, as their worst attacking option, that's a really stacked attacking line. Yeah, I, I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. Yeah. I can see why people would think that Arsenal has more potent personnel, that definitely Manchester City, et cetera, et cetera. But there comes a point where we have to use some of these numbers to try yeah. to test these myths that we have. And we've kind of, of gotten over the any misconceptions we might have about the quality of Spurs' defense. Uh, maybe because there's some causation there, because they brought in Toby Alderweireld in the summer, and he's been one of the best central defenders in the league. And we don't have that same causation in attack to make us think, aha, their attack really has changed. But uh, at some point, maybe it has changed, and we don't need an explanation. It can just have happened without us really understanding it. Regardless, uh, Spurs fans at this point seem to be pretty split. Some are very optimistic, some not so optimistic. Their performance on Wednesday going to be reason for more optimisms. Quickly going through the other results from the FA Cup matches, that the FA Cup replays involving Premier League teams. Exeter 3-0 win over uh, Exeter 3-0 loss against <laughs> Liverpool. Uh, pretty much, I guess, what we would have expected out of, out of this one. Going back to Anfield after the 2-2 draw last week, uh, Liverpool didn't have much trouble here. 
You'd say that, but I was watching the game. I mean, I was switching back between both these games while I was at work. Don't tell my boss. Uh, but uh, I thought that the result flattered Liverpool, Richard, because it was a pretty even game, especially for the second half. Uh, when Ojo scored that goal, the second goal, which was, by the way, admittedly excellent, it again was completely against the run of play. I thought at that time Exeter City were playing well on the break, uh, had created some chances, uh, and that second goal killed the game. But the result flattered Liverpool. Having said that, you have to... I have to be cognizant, and everyone has to be, that this was, again, a highly rotated Liverpool side. He's given a lot of chances to a lot of young players and uh, had a good game out of Benteke, for one. He was involved in the build-up for the first goal and had an assist, a really good assist, for the third Teixeira goal. So, uh, good day overall for Liverpool, but I think the 3-0 still flattered them. Games on Tuesday, Aston Villa 2-0 win over Wickham Wanderers. And West Brom, 1-0 win at Bristol City. A Bristol City team that we noted this weekend coming off a victory against Middlesbrough. Uh, the fourth round matchups for those teams that won. West Ham is going to be... Ho- West Brom is going to be hosting Peterborough. Aston Villa is going to be hosting Manchester City. Tottenham is going to be ves- visiting Colchester. And then Liverpool is going to be hosting West Ham. Those matches will take place next weekend, the weekend of January 29th through the 31st. Fourth round action in the FA Cup. Let's talk about the transfers that have happened over the last few days. We've seen a couple of pockets of big activity. Norwich and Watford making multiple buys this week. Let's talk about Norwich's acquisitions. Tim Krusa from Wolfsburg, central defender, Swiss. I don't think a lot of us know a ton about him. If you do, Nipun, no. feel free to give us a scouting <laughs> I report. I, I feel like my knowledge on him is like two or three years old, so I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I know a lot about him. Uh, but... Probably the highest profile signing of the week so far, Stephen Naismith moving from Everton to Norwich. It's an interesting signing, 11 million euro. Uh, Somebody, Naismith, has a hat trick in the league this year. Very useful, very versatile player. Can play high along the line as a lead forward, behind a forward as a supporting striker. Can play wide, very industrious. And I think what kind of warms my heart about this one, even though I'm usually very cynical about this, is the fact that Everton was very... Uh, amiable to this move. They were very willing to do what was best for somebody who had been a very willing and uh, very, very productive part of their team. Agreed. Um, Stephen Naismith is, is a, uh, is a jewel in my opinion, because as you said, he can play in multiple positions is a very loyal player. Uh, I mean, he, to give historical context to some of our listeners, he uh, the reason he moved to Everton was because Rangers dissolved. Uh, he wouldn't have moved to re- uh, moved away from Scotland otherwise. Uh, has had a hat trick against Chelsea. Has had some good goals a couple of seasons ago. He started the 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 season on fire. I think he had like four or five goals in the first three games uh, in that season. So. Steven Naismith will give Norwich a lot of options, uh, and I'm sure, and we'll get into our uh, predicted uh, relegation candidates. I just, I'm not convinced that he gives Norwich the quality that a, a direct rival like Bournemouth has signed this winter, and that's what worries me. But uh, on paper, Naismith. A jewel, in my opinion. Watford made two signings this week. Costo Pantilimon recently losing his number one job at Sunderland. He moves to the Hornets, presumably as cover for Jorelio Gomez. And then Nordin Amarbet from Malaga, um, Moroccan midfielder. Somebody who 
He has an 8 million euro price tag, and I have seen him play a little bit. Uh, just seems like a depth acquisition. Again, I don't really know a ton about these players. but What position does he play? He, he's yeah. a midfielder. He's a Moroccan a midfielder. midfielder, yeah. Um, he's a mostly, to my memory, is a wide midfielder mostly. Um, but Pontilimon is, is the person I want to talk to you about because people are familiar sure. with him from his time between Manchester City and Sunderland and the fact that he's the tallest goalkeeper in the league and looks like he could probably dunk a basketball without jumping. It's interesting that Watford is going out to essentially get a backup goalkeeper. Equally interesting to me that Pontilimon is moving when it doesn't seem like he's assured playing time. It kind of has this leaping off of a sinking ship feeling to it to me. Yeah, I think this is one of those transfers where he was just offered to Watford. um, And it was probably they were offered a price that they couldn't say no to knowing the kind of rotation that might happen if Watford goes back down, uh, and which they won't. But that, that's the sort of thing. I think it was more of a business acquisition as opposed to anything that we'll see on the pitch. Yeah, I like your note there, which they won't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a couple of a couple of other transfer news. The two other transfer moves that were made this week by Premier League teams. Sunderland has loaned Danny Graham out to Blackburn. Move that makes sense for all involved there. And then West Ham wins a battle for... Uh, Right back Scott Byram from Leeds, who uh, had been Sam ch- Sam Sam Byram. Sam yeah. Byram, thanks. Uh, I was going to ask you about this because I'm under the impression that you do get to watch the championship occasionally. But this is somebody who had been linked with Everton and reportedly changed his mind, went to West Ham because of the prospect of actual playing time. Yeah, uh, it's in, it's an interesting with a uh, thing with Sam Byram. He was actually linked with where the likes of Manchester United, Chelsea, etc. Cool. Back in the day when he was coming through as a youngster uh, not that he's old now but even how long ago was, was that young, like three or four I years say, i want to say when he was 18 so about four years okay um so how old he's probably like 24 now so maybe yeah four or five years um but uh, i remember at that time he was being compared to uh, he, he was considered to be a player that would be switching into midfield much like uh, gareth yeah. bill did uh and apparently that he's has, played mostly midfield for leeds this year Oh, is that right? Yeah, oh, I read he's played mostly midfield, but he has been acquired with uh, the idea of switching him back to his natural position, and he's gotcha. only been in midfield this year just because of Leeds's squad construction. Yeah, I watched the Leeds Middlesbrough game and a couple other games, and he played at fullback in those games. So, no. uh, but either way, I, I think he's really good going forward. So it, it actually is a good signing from West Ham's perspective, who who do like to play on the break, and he's he's a fast player. So. Yeah, they got him for about 3.3 million pounds, which is chump change this day in the Premier League. Uh, we had some feedback on Twitter from uh, from, a, our, from a human Twitter listener from, from a human Twitter <laughs> from a human Twitter bot, uh, basically noting that it's <laughs> nice that we do our top fours every week, but we don't do the bottom threes, and the relegation battle is obviously a huge point of drama. Talking back and forth with him a little bit, I, I mentioned to him that it's a great idea, but we've been kind of struggling where to fit it in on the weekend shows. In case you haven't noticed, the weekend shows go kind of long sometimes. So I think a good a good solution here is to do our bottom threes during our midweek shows. So Nipun, you get to be the first uh, first crash test dummy on this one. Season ended right now. Well, if the season ends, <laughs> it will end in May. Uh which three teams do you think are going to end up in the championship? Villa, 100%. Ooh, Sunderland. Hot take. Yeah, Sunderland. Yeah, I know, right? It's controversial. Uh, Sunderland, uh, probably about 75%. And then 
Norwich City. I mm. think uh, Norwich City has not, as I mentioned, invested enough. I think losing Graban to uh, Burnmouth to me suggested that they had aligned themselves to the fact that they're more likely to go down than to stay up, uh, and the signings that they've made have not convinced me otherwise. So Villa settled in Norwich. Interesting. I don't know if I buy the logic on Norwich because they have spent 22 million euros this week, but I still have them on my list also. And I think it's just because when I watch them play, I'm not convinced. This might be a recency bias because one of their worst sure. matches of the season was this weekend when they lost 3-0 to Bournemouth. But that's still the most recent information I have. Uh, the one team on my list that's not on your list is Swansea. And I think I just need some questions answered about them. How they're going to play with... Uh, Francesco Gudelin basically managing or the head coach of the team. He's not the manager. Alan Curtis is technically the manager. But how they're going to do under him. And until I see some proof that he is going to be able to change things around, there is only one team in the league in my mind that's worse than them right now, and it's Aston Villa. And even Aston Villa, they haven't lost in like four games at this point. So Swansea, at the moment, might be the worst team in the Premier League. Now, will they turn that around? They certainly have the talent to do it. Yeah. At the beginning of the year, after the Chelsea game, I was talking about how, on paper, Swansea looks like a team that could challenge for the top four. Now, the caveat there is I'm an idiot. But <laughs> No, you're right. They beat Man United, too, 2-1. With you, Gomish scoring the winner. And you look player for player on the team. they got a lot of versatility, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. The point is, they have the players to make this not an issue for them. And yeah. at some point, they have to do this, or else they're going to be a side that has as much talent as West Ham when they were relegated, or Newcastle when they were relegated. And those were really unfortunate stories to see those teams go down. Mm-hmm. And it would be equally unfortunate to see Swansea go down. Okay, All right, everybody. Well. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's shift our focus to the weekend. Ten matches between Saturday and Sunday. Eight on Saturday. Two on Sunday. Let's count them down 10 to 1 in order from the one we think is least interesting to the one we think is most interesting, which was pretty obvious this week. You and your damn lists, Richard. Lists, countdowns, slideshows. <laughs> slideshows coming to the podcast here soon. But for now, let's settle with starting with number 10 on this list, Sunderland versus Bournemouth. Good six-pointer in some minds, although six-pointers are every game. They're always six points at stake. Sunderland needs to bounce back from their performance against Arsenal, whereas Bournemouth looked very good against Norwich. However, going up to Sunderland against a Black Cats team that we've seen, Sam Allardyce being able to get some basic functionality out of. This is going to be a lot closer than last week's scores indicated. West Brom versus Villa. Uh, Let's just say if you have had trouble sleeping, this is definitely a game you want to turn on. You will see Tony Pulis uh, play uh, the, the midfield that we've talked about where Basically, it's set up so that there's just one forward. And actually, Rondon scored this week. But uh, in general, West Brom has been awful to watch. Villa, much the same. So, uh, nil-nil. Yeah, that should have been number 10 now that we're thinking about it. Uh, number 8, Watford versus Newcastle. This, these are teams that at various points in the season have looked very good. Watford at one point climbing to the edge of the top 5. And then right now, Newcastle looking like they're getting things together under Steve McLaren. Uh, Georgina Wijnaldum is a very good player to watch at this point. Definitely worth your time. And if John Joe Shelby isn't pressured more than he was this weekend against West Ham, Newcastle is going to have another successful weekend. Against Watford, that won't be as easy. Maybe that's why this game is at number 8 and not number 10 on our list. Yeah, but just to add, I think the Colocini matchup against Igalo Dini will be crucial, crucial in this mm-hmm. game. Uh, next one is Everton-Swansea. Uh, Everton are unbeaten in 21 Premier League games against Swansea. That's a pretty crazy record. 13 wins, 8 draws. Uh, but we also know Everton has had some issues at home, uh, have been dropping points. 
But Swans, on the other hand, have been awful from home. So I'm going to stick with the historical record and say Everton favorites for this one. Number six on our list, Norwich and Liverpool. Only this high because every Liverpool game is compelling at this point because you want to know when things are going to click under Jurgen Klopp. Definitely didn't click last week against Manchester United. Had more chances but did not really craft a great chance with the possible exception of Emery Chan in the second half. They need to get either better chances or better finishing. Norwich coming off that 3-0 loss at Bournemouth. They need to bounce back quickly because when you're at Norwich's place on the table, a couple of results like that can build a momentum that becomes impossible to dig your way out of and then maybe our relegation picture predictions might end up coming true yeah Liverpool is trying to get some bodies back but still some of the same issues apply Manchester United versus Southampton um, these two managers do not get along uh, <laughs> so maybe there might be fireworks although let's be honest LVG won't get out of his seat so probably not uh, Southampton was the last team to beat Manchester United in the Premier League uh, Graziano Pelé was has had three goals in three games against Manchester United and because of that record and because of his height and United's late susceptibility to set pieces I'm predicting that he'll start this game Uh, and David De Gea is going to make his 150th Premier League appearance but uh, just going to edge it to United probably a 1-0 from uh, an own goal. Yeah, Sadu Mane potentially playing against his future team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crystal Palace hosting Tottenham Hotspur. We're putting this here partly because Crystal Palace throughout the course of the year has proven to be a good team, so to speak. Tottenham Hotspur, fourth in the league, two teams in London, etc., etc. The catch here is that Crystal Palace has been terrible in their last five games. They haven't scored. They only have two points. We're starting to see that they're falling into a rut that have many speculating whether... The bad parts of Alan Pardew's resume are starting to resonate in a negative way with the squad. Now, you you contrast that with Spurs. We've seen a couple of very good performances from them against uh, Sunderland uh, this week against Leicester City. This looks like it could be a very lopsided battle. But at some point, Palace does have to bounce back at home. Selhurst Park, even though their form hasn't been great at home, maybe it changes this weekend. Not only has Palace been poor lately, Richard... Palace haven't scored in four out of the last five games against Spurs. So, Ooh, so, so they yeah. can't score. They can't score in the short term. They can't score in the medium term against Spurs, and right. they're coming back home where they haven't been as successful. Right. And Spurs are unbeaten in nine away from home. Yikes! <laughs> oh. So yeah, Spurs heavy favorites for that one. Leicester versus Stoke. Uh, Leicester, as we talked about earlier today, uh, heavily rotated that side. Uh, there will be most of the usuals will come back in. Vardy will start. He came off the bench today. Uh, Leicester uh, with Mares will be interesting. He's missed two PKs. If they get a PK, we'll see, uh, which is possible with Stoke's defense, who I think are one of the uh, most likely to give away PKs in the Premier League. Uh, so Mares, whether he takes those PKs, we don't know, but. Stoke Alona show up, maybe. We do know that Leicester City will use that same fast break that Stoke likes to play. So tactically, an interesting battle. I'm going to just give it to, give the edge to Leicester here. The interesting thing with Leicester to me is that so many people had identified that period from mid to late December oh, yeah. when, their, when their schedule started picking up and they started getting the Chelsea match in uh, Manchester City. And people were saying, this is the point where Leicester really has to prove themselves. Well, it's turning out that they're going to have the point that they have to prove themselves is in all of these games that we think they should be winning. The like the game this weekend against Aston Villa, where they need to get three points instead of one, and they're getting one. And this is another one: Stoke City going to Leicester, 
on paper, when you look at the standings, when you look at how these teams play, even when you look at the talent on these teams, you think Leicester should get three points out of this one. And they're going to need to get three points instead of one because we're at the point where they just can't keep dropping points before one of Arsenal or Manchester City hits the gas and actually makes this into a true title race and not so much a title stall. Speaking of Manchester City, they are going to be at West Ham United, the number two game on our list here. West Ham had been seven matches unbeaten before losing last week at Newcastle. Manchester City starting to find at least some of their scoring form. Although last weekend, their 4-0 victory over Crystal Palace, they didn't have much opposition. I want to slow down and actually talk about this one a little bit, because I think a lot of what we think about this game probably comes down to a question that we haven't answered all year, or two questions that we haven't answered all year. Is West Ham actually good? And if they are good, how are they doing it? Because we've seen a lot of teams vacillate between, say, 5th and 12th in the table, a period right now that stretches from Manchester United all the way down to Everton range. A bunch of teams that can knock each other off on any given weekend, but it's hard to say any of those teams are actually convincing for long periods of time. And West Ham is right in there. I believe they're 6th coming into the weekend. Are they good? And if they're good, are they good in a way that can actually beat Manchester City? I just don't know the the true answers to these questions. I mean, the, 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 I think the second part is easier. I think it, it that they can beat Manchester City. In fact, yeah, they've proven uh, that already. Yeah, exactly. Two two of the last three against City, West Ham has won. Uh, so they can, but obviously they they don't have the personnel that on any given day would beat Man City. I think that's the way to frame that. Uh, I think they're a good team. I think they're yeah. a good team. I think Enner Valencia is, is a player that they are heavily reliant on. He's been in and out of the team. Uh, Diafra Sako coming back. Uh, he has a. How's he going to get to the game? Huh? I heard his car isn't doing too well right now. Wait, wait, what's that story? I don't <laughs> he know. He, uh, two days ago, he crashed his Lamborghini into somebody's house. Oh my god, I totally missed that story. <laughs> yeah, look it up. Is he is he in jail? He's is fine. He... No, nobody's. I didn't hear that anybody was arrested. Nobody was gotcha. hurt. There are lots of photos of him walking away. Him standing by the wreckage of his Lamborghini. Uh, it happened late at night. Not a lot of uh, questions answered as to how it happened, but uh very interesting year for Diafra Sacco. Yes, so. But yeah, Sacco, if he if he uh, has a good game, is someone that on any given day can compete with some really good players. I think he's a, that good of a player. There are other players in this team. Richard Coyate, I think, is a good player. I think Collins is, is let's just say, you know, he's a good defender. I'm not going <laughs> to think, I don't think he's going to make it in the top four or on a team like Liverpool or United, etc. But he's a good defender for West Ham. So, that's why I think they can do well, and and they will end up in and around the. They won't end up with a European spot, maybe just outside a European spot. I think where this conversation gets weird, and this is my fault, is when you just rely on saying things like "Are they good?" and then sometimes you pronounce it "good" as if it's like there's a difference between good and good. I think mm-hmm. what I really mean by that is that yeah. you can be a good team that relies on opposition errors to get to where mm-hmm. you are. Or you can be a good team that actually creates opportunities for yourself. And I think at certain points this year, we have seen Slavin Bilic instill an attitude and a plan that has done the latter. And West Ham has looked very dangerous. And I think at the beginning of the year, we had to come to grips with that. But during this time where they climbed to the edge of the top four and they had that seven-match unbeaten run, which I believe had five draws in there, they started to look a little bit like the former, a team that needed the other team to make mistakes in order to get their points. 
And so if that is actually the case, then this game will seem to be decided more by which Manchester City shows up. We've talked throughout this year about how inconsistent City is. And lately we've seen that inconsistency start to start to crest a little bit. We're seeing the good Manchester City come back a little bit. But how long will it be there? And will it actually show up in East London this weekend? I don't know. Maybe that's why we have this match so high on our list, Napoon. We we just don't know what we're going to get out of Manchester City. And if we don't get the good City, then West Ham United has every ability to take three points in this one. Yeah, I mean, let's let's look back to one of their more pivotal performances recently, which was the win against Liverpool, in which everything you just said is accurate. They, they didn't create a ton of chances. But the few chances they did create, one was from a vintage corner that led to the Carroll goal, is it's the sort of chance that West Ham thrives on. And, and we should allow a team like West Ham to play a team like Liverpool or play a team like City and do jump on the opportunities they're given because we don't expect them to week in and week out create the number of chances that a Manchester City creates. So in that sense, for me, as long as we are cognizant of the fact that West Ham can uh, have a good performance against City and still not put the pressure on them that we put on on a Man United or a club in the top four, top five, I think that's a fair way to analyze West Ham. Mm. Let's skip to what on name value is the marquee match of the weekend. But just like last weekend's marquee match, Liverpool against Manchester United, a lot of the value in this one is based on history more than the table this year. Arsenal title contenders, title favorites even, most people at this point have come around to the idea that they seem to be title favorites. Whereas Chelsea, even though they haven't lost under Gusidic, they actually lost ground in their fight to get away from the bottom three last weekend. They're now within four points of the drop, thanks to both Newcastle and Swansea winning. It just doesn't look like that compelling of a game, Nipun, unless there is really some kind of Derby magic that is going to happen here. There's going to be a revitalized John Terry and a, and a prideful Cesc Fabregas going up against his old team. And then maybe in Hazard is healthy again and he can do something. But beyond that, I'm having trouble seeing anything from recent Chelsea that makes me think that they are going to, well, that we should consider them on anything close to even footing with Arsenal. I don't disagree with that. Uh, I, I think the only other but, person I would add on that list is Costa. I mean, he has, he was uh, talking about history. He's the one that got into that. Uh, uh, as, as Sarah Palin invented this word, squirmish uh, with Gabriel <laughs> uh, last time. So, you know, that's the one player that I think we need to mention as well. Huh? Um, he, he has shown some semblance of form. I know he has a shin injury, which will mean that he's touch and go for, for this game. Uh, but with him possibly playing, I think that's something another thing to consider. And look, there have been moments, like let's go back to even the, the time when Chelsea ended up seventh. Um, that's one season where they won the Champions League. Even in that season, they did well against Arsenal. Chelsea just has this black mark, this dark mark over Arsenal. Uh, and in my opinion, that is really... That, that brings out the best in Chelsea because they, they do feel that they, they have the beating of this team. Arsenal has not scored in the last eight hours against Chelsea. What? I think that's, yeah, that, I read that statistic today. 
Uh, although Arsenal this season... Do that on Twitter or in an actual place? That seems remarkable. Yeah, in, in an actual place. Arsenal has not scored in the last eight hours against oh, Chelsea. Wow. That really yeah. does put it in perspective for me. And in a yeah. lot of ways, the, maybe this game fits the same rubric that we were talking about with Leicester City versus Stoke. This is a game that we expect Arsenal to get three points out of. We expect them to start getting three points out of these games so we can actually have a title race and not just three teams kind of packed together and, and mm. having kind of like this gravitational force that can't separate them but there's a history or there's a suspicion here that makes us believe that one point is not only possible but maybe after the game they might even talk themselves into thinking that it's a decent result i i just can't buy that just like against stoke last week this is a game that title winning arsenal has to get three points out of and maybe they still win the title if they draw this week but to convince me that they are a title winning team or a team that isn't going to get passed by a Manchester City team when they get their act together, they got to win these games. They do. And by the way, I just double-checked that Arsenal have not scored in the last eight hours and two minutes of Barclays Premier League football against Chelsea. Okay. So, wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they do. And here's the thing from from my perspective. Arsenal has done a lot of things this season, Richard, that has made believers out of a lot of skeptics such as myself yourself, Karthik has also come around now. So a lot of people who've had some healthy skepticism of Arsenal have been turning the tide. And some of that is because they're producing the kinds of results that we do not consider Arsenal-esque. Now, most recently against Stoke City last week, it was an ugly win, but it was uh, it was an, a result that... No, no, Arsenal... they, they, but they didn't win, they drew. Sorry, it was a draw. So before that, Arsenal have had an awful record at the Britannia. So... I thought, in my opinion, I tweeted this, that one, that point at the Britannia would have meant as much as the 3 nothing win against Man United. Yeah, I'm going to stop following you on Twitter then. Yeah, well, you don't follow me on Twitter. So, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, the thing to me is that that kind of result means a lot from a psychological perspective because Arsenal have struggled at Stoke City before uh, and for them to set that right, I think, well, and hold on towards the end of that game where they were... They could have lost uh, all three points. To me, that that's the kind of result that gives me belief in Arsenal. And that's why this game is important, more so than the, just the three points. It, it's the fact that Chelsea have had that black mark against them that that goes back to Mourinho's first stint. Uh, and by the way, Hiddink was in charge when Arsenal beat Chelsea 4-1 at the Emirates in 2009-2010. So there's a little bit more of history here with, with Hiddink coming back to Chelsea. Welcome back, everybody. A small disclaimer at this point. We're going to not go off the Premier League path here, but we're going to kind of go to the edge of it, to the edge of it in a way that if you're not a U.S. listener and if you're not a fan of the U.S. men's national team, or maybe you're not either of those categories, but you are interested in it, you might not be interested in the topic we're about to talk about because Kartik is here, Kartik Krishnayar is here now with me, and we're going to talk about something that if you are a fan of the U.S. men's national team, you might find a little bit concerning. And to set the scene for this, I think we have to go back to the year 2000, Kartik. And that's when Brad Friedel makes his move from Liverpool to Blackburn and is instilled at start, as a starting goalkeeper there. And basically, from that point forward, up until recently, in every year of the Premier League, the U.S. has had at least one regular playing average or above average player in the Premier League. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's very true and before that we had guys like uh, John Harks, 
who went to two cup finals with uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, Casey Keller, who was at Leicester, uh, won a League Cup with Leicester, also lost the League Cup final where he kind of made a goalkeeping error. Spurs won that game, uh, and uh, Martin O'Neill was going crazy. That was the 99 League Cup final. And uh, Roy Wagerly, who had been good at the tail end of the first division with Chelsea and QPR, both of whom were uh, outstanding teams, especially QPR at that point. QPR was actually better than Chelsea. They were the best team in West London when Trevor Francis uh, – sorry, when Jerry Francis managed them. I want to say Trevor Francis, all these uh, – uh, prominent Francis is in English football. And uh, and he was a, a big player. And, and Preki had played for Everton in that period as well. So mm. we had guys that were playing for the U.S. national team that were making an impact. Um, and Joe Max Moore came to Everton in, in 2000. And, and he started a good run of a couple seasons uh, when he left MLS. And uh, uh, since then, it's been pretty good. It's a good reminder that pretty much Every year since the Premier League itself separated and became its own entity, there's been at least one American that has been a standout player from the John Harkses and the Casey Kellers to Brad Friedel, whose legacy only grew and really came to appreciate him and his longevity as he played deep into his 30s. And then in that time after Friedel became a regular, we saw players like Marcus Hahnemann holding down a regular spot at Reading. Uh, Tim Howard moved to Everton and established himself. But it wasn't just the goalkeepers at that point, too. We had players like Claudio Reyna moving into the Premier League. Uh, Carlos Bocanegra had a very good run at Fulham. Brian McBride probably did more for the American players' reputation in England and Europe than anybody to that point. Clint Dempsey, of course, putting up 20-goal seasons for Fulham. Stuart Holden having such a great impact at Bolton. And then Brad Guzon after moving from Chivas USA. There was a time three or four years ago where two, three, four U.S. nationals, internationals, Kartik, were above-average players in the Premier League. Yeah, I remember a game on uh, Easter Day in, in 2007 when Carlos Bocanegra and Demarcus Beasley scored the first two goals, Fulham versus Manchester City. Uh, that they, There were games like that then. There were games where you would look at the Fulham score sheet and it would be McBride, uh, Bocanegra, Dempsey. It, it was amazing. And, and then I think about even guys you didn't mention, guys like Jay Demerit. He, he, came, he had that wonderful story coming up with Watford, uh, going from non-league football, going from Green Bay to non-league football to Watford, and then Watford being promoted to the Premier League. He scored a goal at Wembley in the championship final against Eddie Lewis and Leeds. Eddie Lewis had been the best player that season for Leeds United, and had Leeds United come up that year, they would have probably been Leeds United again, right? They would have been this big club. They had gone down. Mm. The thought was they'd come right back up, and they should have, but Watford beat them and upset them in that uh, championship final. Uh, Landon Donovan, a couple lone stints at Everton where he was great. Uh, we talked about Joe Max Moore, and, but he, he's a guy that still stands out to me. A guy who came from MLS, uh, New England Revolution, and really was uh, outstanding for Everton for a couple of seasons. Uh, Bobby Condy played. That season for Reading, uh, that, that first season for Reading when they, they came up uh, and then he got injured. Eric Lehigh was played a number of games for Aston Villa uh, playing uh, at, at right back. And, and Lehigh now is starting at that same position for uh, Nottingham Forest in the championship. And who knows, maybe maybe uh, if they can catch some form late in the season, uh, that he might be the next American back in the Premier League. Even mm. guys like Jovan Karofsky, we forget about him, right? He played... Uh, Crystal Palace in the championship, and then uh, Steve Bruce took him to, to Brum, and uh, he was a player that p- played all over the place, came through Manchester United system, 
I mentioned DeMarcus Beasley, of course, that uh, uh, played a season at Manchester City, played a good year at Manchester City under Stuart Pierce. Uh, he was on loan from PSV. He was plugged in at left back at times, which was the first time he had played that position. And now we've seen he can play that position well at the international level and uh, uh, played as an attacking winger and, and scored a four or five goals that season uh, between all competitions. So a lot of good American players that we even forget about. That's how many Americans were in the league in those days. You think about countries outside the EU, uh, countries where you're going to have to get a work permit. So it's a little bit more difficult to settle in. With the exception of Argentina, I can't make an argument for a country that has had this kind of consistent presence in the Premier League for longer at same level. You've had isolated players like a Didier. Maybe Australia. Maybe Australia. Maybe Australia. That's the other one that came to mind. With to me. Schwarzer but and Viduka. Viduka and Cahill. And but you don't. We couldn't make a list of twenty-five or thirty Australians. I don't think like we can make with Americans. That's true. With with the possible exception of Argentina, I think that at least the U.S. is in the discussion for number two of non-EU nations. So that's. That's the significance of this discussion. If you're not a fan of the U.S. national team, especially if you're not from the U.S., that's understandable. Or if you're just not interested in talking about specific uh, countries in this league picture, that's fine. But when you fast forward to now and you see the lack of a presence of Americans in the league, that's the context. When you see that there are only four Americans that are on the radar, not even playing significant roles like some of those players that we were just talking about. We're just talking about on the radar. We're talking about Tim Howard. A player who, at times, was one of the top three or four goalkeepers in England. Maybe you can make that argument. Certainly people were making it. Now he's somebody that's being debated as to whether he should have a starting job at Everton. Brad Guzon has lost his starting job at Aston Villa. DeAndre Yedlin, a young player, so it's a little bit unfair to compare him to the legacies of some of these other players. Out of all of the Americans in England, the only player that we can kind of definitely say is an average player as far as what they're contributing to their club, Tim Howard might be, but as far as definitely say... Jeff Cameron's versatility and production at Stoke is a very valuable asset for Mark Hughes. Regardless, that this represents a kind of a, a, a nadir at this point, Kartik. And the question is, how did we get here? Yeah, it, that, that's, uh, that's a big question. I mean, I think about even the, 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 the love uh, fans, supporters of, uh, of clubs in Britain have for some of these American players. And they were always very skeptical of American players and always looked down upon the United States in a football sense. But then I know Leeds United fans who, who loved Eddie Lewis, absolutely adored Eddie Lewis, and then said, you know, when we got Eric Lehigh on loan from Aston Villa, he was pretty good. That guy's a gamer. We like him. There's always and, and, one and, guy that just that just is so tough and so kind of those stereotypical American traits of being physical, of being yep. willing, of showing so much heart. You talk about people at Fulham with McBride and eventually with Dempsey. I mean, there's always that story of one person that convinces the fan base. Yeah, and so all these clubs, uh, Joe Max Moore at Everton opened the door, and then they loved McBride when he was there on loan, and they got mm -hmm. uh, obviously Landon Donovan on loan a couple of times, and, and it just kind of changed the image of American players. Now we have a generation of new fans to the Premier League, both in the United States and abroad, who don't uh, who don't know the the, the, oh, the, the sacrifices, and this is really bothers me, Richard. Yeah, don't understand the sacrifices those American players made, how difficult it was for them to gain acceptance in in. in Britain, and probably just think American players aren't good enough to play in the Premier League, which, unfortunately, if American players don't test themselves, uh, we, we'll never know. And, and I guess this gets to the, the, the uh, meat and potatoes of this argument, to use an American expression. Uh, 
I think Major League Soccer, it's a good thing to have a domestic league that's able to keep domestic talent and that's able to attract the domestic talent back to MLS. I complained for years that MLS didn't, didn't make the effort to attract American talent the way they did foreign talent from abroad. But unfortunately, now that the league is doing well enough that they have the resources, a lot of American players have gotten into a comfort zone where they don't feel like they have to test themselves. They don't feel like they have to go over at a young age. Even seven, eight years ago, guys like Eric Lehigh felt like he had to go over at a young age. Jonathan Spector went over at a very young age and uh, is still in England. And Lehigh is still in England. Those guys mm-hmm. have never played in Major League Soccer. But now I think it's, it's almost impossible to imagine a guy taking a career path of a Jonathan Spector and going to Manchester United's academy That's and then, then getting loaned out to Charlton and, and making a name for himself in English football. Or an Eric Lehigh. They're all going to go to MLS academies. They're all going to sign Generation Genadidas contracts. And uh, because MLS is offering competitive wages, we learned that with Jordan Morris. They were offering uh, a slightly less, it sounds like, than Werder Bremen offered. And in the past, Werder Bremen would have offered two or three times what MLS was offering. He opted to stay at home and, and stay where he's comfortable. And, and we hope it works out for him and he works out for the U.S. national team. But I personally feel like if you're, if, if you're of an another generation of American, you challenge yourself. The guys in the previous couple generations would have said, I, I have the option to stay in Major League Soccer where I'm comfortable in my hometown, or I have the option to go to Werder Bremen, who's in a relegation fight in the Bundesliga, massive club with massive support. This is their worst season in a long time. I'm going to take that challenge. I'm going to win acceptance with those fans. I'm going to grow into the culture of football. I'm going to become a legend there, like Steve Cherundolo, who, who went to Germany at a young age, never left oh. on over. Uh, unfortunately, now I, Americans just don't have that mentality. Part of it is because of the success of Major League Soccer, but I think it's a problem. Yeah, I wonder if it's a problem. I'm definitely open-minded to it, but it's such a good point. I hadn't thought about that before because the closest analog I think that we've seen recently to what you were talking about, a young player having to go over and prove himself, is Mark Pelosi, who signed as a 16-year-old, went to Liverpool's academy, uh, came back last year. He's now playing with San Jose. He's currently uh, in the January camp with Jurgen Klinsmann and the national team. Um, but when he kind of ran his course at Liverpool, he came back here, whereas some of these players on this list, they probably would have stayed in England or did stay in England. You're talking about Jonathan Spector when he didn't really latch on with Manchester United's first team. He went out on loan and then he went to West Ham. Uh, Eric Lehigh, he got, did get a couple of seasons of good run with Villa, but then had to, uh, switch teams. We saw you talk about Jovan Karowski kind of kicking around for a couple of years before going back to Europe. Now people are coming back to Major League Soccer. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, Kartik, but it certainly seems to be contributing to the dwindling number of Americans we see in the Premier League. Yeah, another guy I forgot about was Frank Simic, a St. Louis-born defender yeah. who who uh, went through Arsenal's academy and ended up at Sheffield Wednesday and never came back. Uh, he played out his career in England, and uh, he retired a year or two ago. He's, o- he's only about 30 now, 31. Uh, had some injuries, but mm. he never came back. And I'm wondering if that's the situation with Jonathan Spector. Uh, Gu- uh, Gucci who never played in Major League Soccer. Uh, he went over right from Clemson, left Clemson early had been a big prospect. He had been a U-17 and U-20 U.S. player. He had gone to the Bradenton Academy. But he didn't feel obligated to sign in Major League Soccer after he went to Clemson uh, for two seasons. He decided to go directly to Europe uh, and and made a very good career for himself before his injuries caught up with him. Now it seems uh, it, the opposite happens. But it's good that MLS is there 
to catch these guys when they fall. So Pelosi, Sebastian Leggett is another example. Mm -hmm. Obviously was at West Ham's Academy. Had he not had that car accident, some people think he might have uh, developed quicker at West Ham. Uh, but those, those guys now have been able to come back to Major League Soccer and establish themselves as, as bona fide starters in the league. And uh, I think uh, Leggett especially is on the cusp of becoming a star. We'll see what happens this season with the Galaxy. But, you know, maybe it would have been better if uh, it, this this is really going to put the put it to the test. I'm mean, comparing uh, guys like Leggett and Pelosi, Specter and uh, and uh, and Lehigh, and the career trajectories of of, of maybe that those two players versus uh, Lehigh and Specter, and see who who actually has has the better careers. Hmm. Because um, Specter and Lehigh never came back, and once Lehigh was let go by Aston Villa, he uh, he moved on to. Um, to to Forrest. Now, uh, I Lehigh was a surprising one for me because he was a guy at a very young age that signed um, in in England, and he was a guy that hadn't really been that big a prospect in the U.S. youth setups. Although he was a player that uh, Bob Bradley knew and, and liked mm-hmm. from a young age from from the Midwest. So he uh, uh, Bob Bradley had tracked him, and so when he finally got games at uh, at Villa, he was in the national team. Remember, he was he started throughout that Gold Cup run in 2011, and famously in the final, the ball went over his head when Tim Howard came off his line, that great Gio DeSantos goal. Amazing goal. Um, yeah, amazing wow. goal. Uh, maybe a bit of a still breath- goalkeeping it's, goal. Uh, it's still breathtaking years later. Yeah. But uh, I think the, the big question now is, is this, you mentioned Mark Pelosi, is that system of going over at a young age, getting training, and then coming back, is that going to end up no. being a... Uh, the, the right formula, maybe? Maybe. Uh, you look at what happened with Stu Holden. Uh, Sunderland didn't work out, comes over here, established himself as a uh, a borderline all-star, would have eventually been a, a, a perennial all-star if he stayed with Houston. But then he went over to Bolton, and he was very good, uh, pairing in midfield with Fabrice Mwamba there. Uh, I think he shocked a lot of people as to how good he was immediately playing in a slightly different role than he played in Major League Soccer, playing in a deep, deeper role, somebody that wasn't necessarily creating goals but moving the ball as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, his career derailed. But then I look at other people on this list, Kartik, and I wonder, you know, if Carlos Bocanegra comes back to the U.S. instead of going to France, um, is that a good thing for him? Even though he started in Major League Soccer and went over, so it's not exactly the same thing, but... If you don't have the safety net and you have to push yourself, we we can look at a number of these players on this list, and they, they probably became better players. Like if Claudio Reyna had been offered a designated player contract coming uh, when he was done with Leverkusen, or at any point really after he left UVA, would that have right. been better for his career? I think that's very difficult to say yes, considering the high level that he played at and his uh, seeming, seemingly, seeming ability to adjust to all of those levels that he was at. Right. I mean, I guess maybe we should concede this, and uh, because there'll be people who, who can make this obvious critique of what we're saying. Maybe that generation of American players was just better than this generation. Maybe but, the reality is that when you talk about, I mean, and I look back at the 2002. The depth of that team was remarkable. And even the 2010 team, the number of guys who had played abroad and in different places, every single member of that 2010 World Cup team that Bob Bradley took to South Africa played abroad either during that World Cup, 20 of the 20, uh, 19 of the 23 players did at that point, or uh, at some point, either right before that, as Landon Donovan had at Everton, or um, in the next year, uh, Bornstein 
Finley and Buttle all moved abroad soon after that World Cup. So maybe that those generations of American players that the, the 2002, 98, 2002, uh, the nine, let's say 99 Confederations Cup through like 2006 World Cup and then the 2010 team, maybe they just had better players that were more attractive to foreign clubs. Could that be it? Yeah, I think that's we potentially have to consider that partly because this isn't the first time that anybody has hypothesized that maybe this current group of players in Jurgen Klinsmann's player pool isn't as talented as the players six years ago or 16 years ago. Uh, Americans have had a lot of classic talent during those periods. And right now, as as Clint Dempsey's career enters its final stage, as Landon Donovan has just exited the scene, and as Tim Howard is certainly in his last few years as a professional, it looks like we might just be at an odd point in our development. Uh, who's to say that those players won't be replaced by the Giassi Zardises of the world or the Jordan Morrises of the world in two or three years? It's just that at this snapshot in time, it looks different. And maybe it looks different because of some other factors, too. If we're going to judge it by representation in the Premier League, maybe we need to acknowledge that more than even more than 15 years ago, when England was very capable of drawing talent into the league, now it's even more capable. We see so many players that are good players from France and Italy and Germany now going over to England on a regular basis because the buying power of those teams is better. And it extends into the championship, too. There's more competition for spots in England than there was 15 years ago. At least you can make that argument. Yeah, I think I think that that certainly is part of it because there were a lot of guys that were playing in the Italian league or playing in the French league that were uh, that were off limits to Premier League teams. I mean, just think about the exodus from Marseille this past summer, where you have guys like IU, both IUs and and uh, uh, Dimitri Payet, most significantly, go to West Ham. I mean, the idea of West Ham buying a star player from Marseille uh, prior to 2014-2015 uh, seems absolutely crazy, doesn't it? Right. Um, a, a guy who's in, in, in the apex of his career. So maybe it is just that the Premier League is, is at such a higher level in their ability, maybe not to attract the top global stars. They seem to be playing in Spain or with Bayern Munich or with PSG. But uh, the depth of... of uh, quality that the English league quite frankly did not have throughout much of its uh, existence from the, the start of the Premier League breakaway in 92 uh, until uh, 2004-2005. I think that there was a real lack of depth even on some of the top teams in England, which can explain why they struggled in the European competition for so long. I, so I think there's good arguments on all sides as to why this is happening. I mean, it certainly is happening. Uh, kind of a dim diminution of American contributions in the Premier League. Uh, the discussion points seem to be, is it going to be a long-term thing? Are, are Americans eventually going to resume having a regular impact in the Premier League? Why is it happening? Uh, does it reflect a dip in the player pool, the quality of the player pool? Or is it something that reflects other factors? What do, what do your instincts tell you, Kartik, as to what it is? I, I guess my instincts say it's it's a little bit of everything. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think certainly that there is a dip in the player pool. I don't think there's any question about it. And I, I would point to, and I don't know specifically which podcast it was, Richard, but you and I were on a podcast before the 2010 World Cup where we, we saw the next group of American players. We thought there was going to be a, uh, a lack of a depth in the, in the talent. Uh, compared to the group we had in 2010, and that there was a uh, um, there was a passing of a generation, and the next generation wasn't going to be quite as strong. So that was um, 
that was something that I think was apparent even a couple of years ago to, to people like you and I and, and some yeah. others in, in the U.S. soccer press that follows this, uh, this situation closely. But then I think on top of that, uh, if you look closely at the way the Premier League has evolved, I think it's unfortunate because uh, the, the league, when we had all these American players in the league, the league was not that prominent in the United States. It didn't have the footprint it does. And not, 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 nothing close to where it does now. And now, with more Americans watching, more new American fans, soccer fans, becoming engaged in the sport because of the Premier League, more than anything else. The Premier League, uh, Don Garber made a comment recently that, the, that MLS actually has more fans in this country than the Premier League. That's nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. So many, uh, and so many people <laughs> it's have funny, but... <laughs> it is kind of funny, right? Um, but so many people have come to this sport, become fans of this sport because of the Premier League. And the, and the popularity of the Premier League, the visibility of the Premier League, uh, the amount of uh, games the Premier League has on television now on NBC, that a lot of those people are not becoming U.S. national team fans. They, they, and they seem to have kind of a defeatist mentality about how, the, how, mm. how much talent the United States has or how much talent the U.S. can produce or how much talent the U.S. historically has produced. They, they, they seem to buy into this narrative that we've never really had standout players. And it's because they're newer to the sport and they don't realize how many guys we contributed to, to the Premier League and even to the Bundesliga. Now we have a lot of guys in the Bundesliga who are German-Americans, but we have a lot of Americans born in the United States that moved to Germany at a young age, guys like Toronto, who I mentioned earlier, who were contributing to Bundesliga rosters. We had guys playing Spain at one point. We had guys, uh, a guy in, in, in Alexi Lawless playing Italy. So uh, we've had a lot of success in, in, in exporting players we just don't anymore. And unfortunately, this is coming at a time when the sport is more popular and more visible than any time in, in its history in this country. And a lot of those newer fans just seem to think that, well, perhaps the U.S. never really was, uh, was there. The U.S. never really had it uh, as far as good players. And that's uh, hard to believe. Yeah. Um, tell them to watch the World Cup in South Korea and Japan. There are just some moments that'll make you think that the U.S. is on the right track and we're, we're going to be a semifinal contender in the future. It's waned a little bit and there needs to be a rethink and a reassessment. But geez, we have produced some good uh, players in the past. Uh, I guess some other kind of more ethereal questions. Does, do you think this impacts your enjoyment of the league at all? Um, yes. Honestly, I want, I, I want to see more Americans contributing. I want to see more Americans playing well. And I, I don't know if it impacts my enjoyment. I enjoy the league, but it does. It is a, so, a sore spot for me. It's, it's something mm-hmm. um, I always want to see more Americans in the league. I mean, I, I'll admit when I play football manager, I always sign an American player if I'm playing <laughs> with a championship or Premier League. It's just like a standard thing. It's oh, like it gives, a you, rule something, that it gives I have. you something to root for, right? Yeah. That's and, that's uh, awesome. That's awesome. You've always yeah, been, you've I've, always been more patriotic than I am, Kartik. But even when <laughs> going through going through and just researching the players, um, looking back at the twenty plus years of the Premier League and seeing kind of the contri- contribution Americans have had, it did make me kind of proud to s- just list the sheer number of these players. Uh, when we were listing those players earlier in the segment, we listed tw- we listed twenty five different players, and we didn't put anybody on this list that weren't actually good at one point in time. We didn't, right. mention, we didn't mention Eddie Johnson here. We only right. mentioned players who, for, if, for at least one season, were good, at least average players in the Premier League, and there, there are so many of them. Roy Hodgson thought he was good. In the first game he, after he signed him in the January, oh, I remember he, started that. Him. he started him, remember? And he yeah. was awful. 
Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't play at the Premier League level. But you're right. I mean, I, I have to admit now on Football Manager, there is kind of the cheat mode, which is to uh, uh, to sign uh, John Brooks or sign uh, uh, Fabian Johnson because they, they, they're good enough to fit into any uh, team in England that, you, that you're able to get them on. So uh, they're German Americans. They're U.S. national team players. They're, they're uh, sons of uh, American servicemen, so they're very much Americans. But it's just it, – it's, again, uh, that's, that's just like it is for Klinsmann. You, you kind of have to go even – managing and football manager, I have to go to the German-American players to find Americans that can actually play for my teams that are good enough on mm. that game, which I think says a lot. Yeah. I think another thing that comes to mind in talking about this card tick is I don't really have an opinion yet as to the quality of players that Major League Soccer is developing, the ability of the academies to feed into the national team, a successful national team. I don't have an opinion on that yet. I don't think we're far enough down the road where we have a lot of good evidence to that. And I think a lot of the arguments are based on theories, good theories and uh, good hypotheses as to how this will play out. I, I just don't have any of those hypotheses, so I don't really get involved in the debate. But what comes to mind as we talk about this is that we really are putting all of our eggs into one basket here. The U.S. at least is. If you want to have the debate as to whether MLS soccer is better development environment than Werder Bremen or whatever place you want to pick out, that's fine. Regardless, we are really, really hoping that the Major League Soccer side of that argument comes to bear. Because if not, the player pool is going to be bad. Yeah, the player pool is going to be terrible if MLS isn't developing these guys adequately. And it's a real concern because uh, we haven't seen high-level youth coaching in, in the United States uh, at, the, at that level. And we've so much uh, in the way of uh, players who come through the U.S. system and by the U.S. system, I mean the U.S. Uh, USSF system, the, uh, their academy system, not the uh, not the MLS academy system, because we don't have enough data points in on the MLS academy system. But so many guys who come through Bradenton or come through the USSF development academy setup just not have mental toughness and the tactical sense to be successful at a high level internationally or going abroad playing their club football so that's that's something i think we have a we have a mentality issue with a lot of american players and we have a uh, bad tactical sense bad positioning yeah. sense you see guys always out of position bunching up on the pitch uh, this is something this is why i think bob bradley was so regimented in his tactics uh, it, it was negative I, I agree that a lot of what bradley did was negative tactically but i think it had to be given the instincts of American players. And I contrast that with so many of the guys you named on that list. I mean, Jovan Karofsky didn't come back to MLS until he was in his 30s. Eddie Lewis, I remember when he was with mm. the San Jose Clash early in his career, was so good, got the f first chance he got to go abroad, he went and didn't come back until he was uh, ready to retire. Uh, one, Best one left foot in U.S. history. Galaxy. Best left foot in U.S. history, great crosser of the ball, just fantastic. You go back and watch the 2002 World Cup. Even a guy you didn't mention on this list because he didn't get a work permit when uh, they tried to sign him in the Premier League was uh, was uh, Josh Wolf, who was another oh, great yeah. player. And very, ended up going to, very good player. Yeah, ended up going playing in Germany. So we, we had guys that wanted to make those sacrifices, wanted to get abroad, uh, Bobby Conley didn't get a work permit the first time he tried to go abroad. DeMarcus Beasley didn't get a work permit mm -hmm. when Southampton tried to sign him when they were fighting uh, relegation. And then he ended up going to PSV and won all the way to the Champions League semifinal under, under Goose Edick, uh was their manager. These guys made sacrifices and took chances with their careers. Volcanegra is another one. 
in, in that period in, in early in the early 2000s when our national team was really flying high. These guys were trying to establish themselves in the national team. The only way DeMarcus Beasley is going to establish himself in the national team is to get abroad, get games, excel at the European level. Bobby Condi felt the same thing. Eddie Lewis, who was their competition at the same position, was already in Europe. These guys felt like they had to go abroad to improve themselves. They were competitive. They took chances, and our national team benefited from it. Now, this generation of American players, they have the safety net of MLS and the academy system and uh, Generation Adidas and all these big MLS contracts. I just fear for the national team, yeah. it's not going to be as good. But, of course, maybe it's more important to have a good domestic league than have guys that are outstanding in, in, uh, other, in European leagues and in uh, international play. I don't know. That's a decision each individual fan has to make. But uh, I'd rather have guys excelling in the Premier League and Bundesliga and for the U.S. men's national team. But maybe some people say they'd rather MLS be the best league it could be. Uh, now that we've talked about it, I think I'd rather the players be spread out a little bit so we're not going to live and die with MLS's ability to live up to what the league's most ardent fans think the league is going to eventually be. You have a lot of good arguments and arguments that I agree with that Major League Soccer is so much more competitive now than it was, than it's ever been. So many more resources to develop these players and to instill an environment that can keep these players progressing where the players that you mentioned maybe couldn't realistically look at the domestic league and say, I'm going to develop here as a player. But for the U.S. to really improve from where it's been in the past as a national team MLS is going to have to improve with it, it seems like. Or at least it's going to have to improve as it concerns player development. And if it doesn't, there's no backup plan anymore. MLS's ability to buy so many players and, or to spend on players to keep them at home means that if MLS doesn't live up to the player development hype car tick, there's no plan B. And all of a sudden, the U.S. goes from a team that wins the hex pretty much every time recently to a team that really is playing catch up to Costa Rica and Mexico. Right. Yeah. There is no plan B. And the, the, the fear I also have with this, uh, I have to say is that I think there's a, a general sense that, um, and, and, and I've, I've heard even Casey Keller and Brian McBride who, who finished their careers in MLS, but had good careers abroad talk about this on ESPN FC that, uh, you, you get lulled into kind of a sense of complacency because of the speed, the speed of thought uh, in MLS versus other leagues. So Keller was remarking that I think it was the Mexico game in, in the Coliseum, or not the Coliseum, sorry, the Rose Bowl, the, the CONCACAF Cup uh, final, that there was, this, um, there was this speed of uh, decision-making issue that he sees with guys oh, that are playing in MLS. Yeah, and I, I hadn't even thought about that. Well, I think, I think that's just a great way to put it. Maybe we talk around that a lot as far as we end up resorting to arguments as far as technical quality and tactics and things like that. But particularly when you were talking about DeMarcus Beasley before, for so long, I think people question whether he had a significant role to play in the national team during really the last two cycles. But there were so many points where you saw the experience of him constantly testing himself in those big leagues and being able to go up against players that on paper people thought were just better players and always able to compete with them. And it just feels like to me that that's probably what players are missing, that that confidence to be able to look up, go up against the guy that has the better reputation, that has the more storied history, but know that you've been in that situation before and you can compete. Yeah, one thing about Beasley always was that he had a uh, he had a real good positioning sense, and that came, I think, from going to Europe 
at, at a fairly young age and, uh, and playing for PSV and then and moving around and being competitive. And that's, that's an important way to look at it. You know, one of the things about MLS though, also that some of the proponents of MLS says it can say it can be a top five league in the world. And I, I just don't think that's ever possible in this, in this day and age. There are, also, people who are anti MLS in the U.S. who say, "Oh, look at how great the old NASL was!" And we, if you take the shackles <laughs> off of it, the league can be the same way. I have I have two words for those people, for both sets of people. Bosman ruling. It, it, you will never create a league outside of Western Europe, I believe, in this day and age that is at the level of top Western European leagues because of the free movement of players within the European Union, which is not something you had in the past. And it's so easy. You don't need a work permit to go work, uh, to go play in these other EU countries. So I think uh, any league outside of uh, the European Union is at a se- severe disadvantage. So Brazil MLS and Argentina can, are examples of that. Yeah. So MLS can be a top, maybe top 15 league in the world, maybe top 12. Um, but I don't think it can be a top five league in the world. I think the top five leagues in the world are going to always be in Western Europe mm. at, because of the Bosman rule in the EU. Mm. Kartik, let's close this off by bringing this back to the Premier League. And for the American fans in the Premier League, do you think this current kind of trough and U.S. contributions in the Premier League, do you think that's going to be a long-term phenomenon? Unfortunately, yes. I think we're, we are at a low watermark right now with uh, just uh, Cameron as a significant contributor. Uh, but I think we might be looking at just one or two guys, dribs and drabs of guys coming and going. We're not going to have another uh, situation where, like I mentioned, there was that Man City uh, uh, Fulham game where Fulham had like three American guys and, and uh, Man City had both Reyna and Beasley. And Beasley and Bocanegra scored the first two goals in the game. And it was, a, it was a game on Easter Day. Of course, in those days, we didn't have NBC. It was on a Satanta or Fox Soccer Channel or something. But um, for those people who got those channels, it was really cool that the first two goals were uh, scored by American players. So um, that's, a, uh, th- th- that's a significant thing. I mean, I think uh, you, you look back at that, and we may just never have that again. So that is a problem for us as people that are either nostalgic for the way the Premier League was or have loyalties to the U.S. But as it concerns the national team's future and as it concerns the Premier League as a product, do you think that's a problem? Yeah, I, I mean, I think NBC was... Um, Fo- Fox would be really? tearing their hair out about this. Right, right, right. NBC, but NBC, I think, even was really hoping that Josie worked out at... Yeah, uh, at, at Sunderland, and we're disappointed when my uh, when Clint Dempsey left Spurs. Uh, just uh, well, a we month see how much NBC attention they give to Tim Howard and Jeff Cameron. Right. Yeah. Right. And Jeff Cameron's the only guy consistently playing a field position, a uh, field player. I think also it would be helpful if there were more Concacaf players. I mean, I think Joel Campbell. There's been a lot of fascination with him on NBC and in in, in the U.S. press because he's a Concacaf player and. Uh, if you have guys that are, um, at least from your region, it helps build the, the brand of the Premier League here. But uh, there just needs to be that American player somewhere. And, and, and whether it's a, an American player at a major Premier League club, and right now all 20 Premier League clubs are more visible than, <laughs> you know, 18 of, uh, or 16 of the 18 clubs in the Bundesliga or uh, uh, 17 of the 20 clubs in La Liga. But we need a visible star younger American player on one of the 20 Premier League clubs or on uh, one of the top Mm. three clubs in Spain or one of the top two or three clubs in Germany. And we don't have that right now. Mm. Well, everybody, 
Thanks for indulging us as we dove into a topic that's near and dear to Kartik and Mai's hearts. On Sunday, though, we're going to get back to business as normal, talking about the 23rd round of action in the Premier League, Chelsea and Arsenal, the highlight game there at the Emirates on Sunday. But until then, for everybody at the World Soccer Talk family, for Nipun Chopra, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik? Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is L-O-Z-C-A-S-T, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra 7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.